Good to see some of you out today. Thank God for the Supreme Court, which said it's okay for us to meet as a church. Aren't you happy about that? <clears throat> All right. We're going to move along in our study of Matthew's Gospel. Believe it or not, we're actually working our way through Matthew's Gospel. Now, anybody who has a Bible will know that Matthew is the first one in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason Matthew is first is because Matthew was written first. Now, the Jews were very capable and literary people. What do you say? Very into the word. Now, <clears throat> there would be no valid reason why the apostles would wait 25 years for Mark to write the first gospel. But there is a predominant theory right now that Mark wrote first. It's vogue in American colleges and, and commentaries. We also happen to live in New Testament times. We're not in Old Testament times, even though we're looking through the genealogy, which is dealing with a lot of Old Testament history. In the New Testament, the church is to be structured by the giftings of the Holy Spirit, which is to say the, the mission is no longer limited or restricted by ethnicity, gender, age, or social status as it was in the old system. Now, I call it the mission rather than the church because church sounds like a building, but we're on a mission, are we not? Take the gospel to all the world. That's what we're about, not building a church. We're about building a mission that gets the gospel out. And that needs all hands on deck, regardless of your situation in life and your gender, your ethnicity, or your age. What do you say? So we want to pay attention as we're going through this genealogy to see some of the foundations that were laid down that help us understand how God works, not only in history, but how, how God is working today. All right? <clears throat> So these two things we're going to look at today as we go through Josiah. We're making our way through the five good kings. We looked at Hezekiah last week. Amazing story. Amazing king. Uh, Josiah is the last one of the good ones, believe it or not. And he was eight years old when he became king. And more importantly, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not turning to the right or to the left. So can you imagine as an eight-year-old becoming king. Wow, that's a tremendous responsibility. Eight years old. That's so young, isn't it? I set a birthday party for two grandkids yesterday. One was seven, and uh, I think the other one might be two. I don't even know anymore. It's too hard, too hard to keep track. Sixteen of them. But I think that's seven. That's so young. Eight's not much older than that. So... He's the 16th king of Judah, <clears throat> the son of uh, Am Ammon, which was you know, a horrible king. And his grandfather was Manasseh, which was a terrible king, the worst of, uh, among the kings of Judah. But he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So here's a little kid uh, at eight years old, has enough sense to follow God, which is to say you have to pay attention to youth. Kids can know the Lord, and kids can follow Jesus Christ. What do you say? Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> the grace of God is amazing. And so for three generations in Josiah's reign, reign 31 years, there was peace and prosperity and reform. And he devoted himself to doing what was right. 
So he had three stages of uh, sort of reformation or three stages in his reform movement when he came to the throne. So in the eighth year of his reign, now when he's 16 years old, which means he's a teenager, he began to seek God. Can teenagers seek God? Can, should teenagers seek God? Absolutely. So here's a kid as a teenager who's in the highest position of authority, but he's, he's, uh, he's, seeking, he's seeking the Lord. And then at age of 20, in his 12th year, he begins to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of all the idolatry and all the uh, idols that had been pl uh, put into place by his fathers and forefathers before him. So he begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem. Now, normally we think of Judah and Jerusalem as, you know, the holy city, but for the most part, it's a very unholy place. All right? What do you say? That's what we've been finding out. How he's getting rid of the Asherah poles, the idols, the images, the bales, the altars, the incense altars, yeah, the, the idols. He's getting rid of them, all of them, all this stuff. Can you imagine in Judah, in Jerusalem, you have such pagan, idolatrous practices. Absolutely unbelievable that you would organize your culture around the worship of images, which often included human sacrifice. Then after he did Judah and Jerusalem, he decided to go to the remnant of Israel. Now, you remember under Solomon's son, there was a civil war, the ten in the north and two in the south. The kingdoms were split. 722, Sennacherib, the Assyrians, took a bunch of the northern tribes captive and spread them all throughout the east, which is important historically for us to remember that. But there still are pockets of Israelites living in the northern section, as we can see here. And he went there personally, and he tore down altars himself, Asherah poles, idols, uh, incense altars throughout Israel. So when he talks about throughout Israel, now he's talking about the northern kingdom. All right? So it looks like this, and even more so than that, in all these places that he personally supervise the destruction of the altars, the bales, the images, the Asherah poles, as far north as the city of, of Nephtali. All right? Isn't that awesome? What a guy. Gotta love him. Now, <clears throat> when he's 26 years old, which is still a young man, anybody remember being 26? Where was I when I was 26? Oof. Nope. It's lost. Lost. So he decided that it was time to purify the temple. So he's been taking care of the land, and now he wants to do the temple. So he gets his uh, top guys, and one of them is the recorder, which is the historian, to document this a process to repair the temple that had fallen into disrepair and was full of idols. And uh, so they went to the high priest <clears throat> and he gave him money. 
Money is a hot topic in the Bible, isn't it? Where did they get this money? They got it from the Levites who collected it from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel. Remember, we just talked about that in the northern kingdom when he went up there to trash all the idols. They did a collection among God's people, and they also collected funds from Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they entrusted it and gave it to men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. Now check this out. They took a collection, a huge collection to repair the temple to further the work of God. The temple had fallen to disrepair. They've been neglecting the word of God. They are going to cleanse the temple. Now, when people turn to God, they become generous with the work of God. They invest in the building of the kingdom of God. All right? So they collected money, and they gave the money to the right people that they knew, they believed in, and trusted who would move the work forward. Important that you see that. They gave money also to the carpenters, the builders, the people who purchased stones and wood and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. All right? So... Some of the Levites were secretary and scribes. What did that mean? They could take notes. They were recorders. They had paper. They could read and write, okay? Always want to point you back to that. It becomes important in the future. So they, they took a collection, and they gave it to the right people that they knew would use it properly. We also take collections to build the kingdom of God, do we not? And we give it to our good partners who we know who will work faithfully to build the kingdom of God. We take collections. We give funds to those who will build the church. When we look at what they're doing here and we look at what we're doing, going, well, that's kind of like what we do, right? We are not just collecting money so, you know, I can have a Porsche and a nice big jade belt buckle and gold chains or build a, a kingdom here. We're not collecting money for that. We're building the kingdom of God. And we're going to give this money to people who are faithful and accountable for the work that uh, we have determined to be the will of God. All right? So when you see what they're doing here, when you look at what we're all about, uh, you know, it makes me happy because we know God is at work to make good things happen. Now, here's another next thing that happened. They're repairing the temple. They're getting it all uh, rid of all the idols and the trash that's in it from demons. Can you imagine that? And Hilkiah, the, the high priest, found the book of the law of the Lord <clears throat> that had been given through Moses. Can you imagine? Wait, what? <laughs> you know, we thought it was a great when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. Remember that? Can you imagine? In the temple, you go, wow, I found the Bible. <laughs> I found the book of the law in the temple. And he gave it to Shaphan, however you pronounce it. So they come across uh, the copy of the book of law, which was discovered. Now, the 
the, the word of God always needs to be discovered personally. What do you say? Often the Bible sits on the shelf. Nobody reads it. All of us have multiple versions of the Bible. Sometimes it just sits there and collects dust. We need to discover the scripture again. We need to stay in the scripture. It needs to be alive to us and personally impact our lives. If you're not in the Bible regularly, you need to get into it. Sometimes it, you know, we, we have a routine. Sometimes we fall out of that routine. What we see happening here is a rediscovery of the word of God. Whew. And they're going, wow, there's some stuff written in here the king needs to know about. <laughs> so they took the book to the king and reported to him. And they read it to the king. Can they read? What language is this? This would be Hebrew language. And when they read it to the king, he was horrified. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes, which is a symbol of repentance and, and horror. And he gave orders to these five guys to go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and for Judah about what is written in this book that's been found. Now they have the example of what took place in Israel in 722 B.C. So they know that the words spoken by Moses and written in this book are true and accurate. And now they want to know where they are on the timeline of God's judgment. Because he says, great is the Lord's anger that's poured out on us because our fathers have what? Not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is what? Written. Can they write? <sighs> the discovery of the word of God provided a new momentum for this reformation that Josiah was doing. And we see the conviction of sin in the fact that he took immediate action. And conviction of sin comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you say? If there's no conviction of sin, the Holy Spirit is not at work. You need the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. So, rips his clothes, hears the words, and apparently the books of Moses had been lost or hidden during the, the desecration of the temple and all the side of worship that was going on, not only in Jerusalem and Judah, but all over the country. And you had these wicked kings of Judah, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, destroying copies of the law. And what they feel like is that it was hidden somewhere in a, in a vault or you know, under a paving stone. And in the process of repairing and cleaning out the temple, they found it. They found the five books. And they read them and realized that they're in big trouble. Right? They're in big trouble. Now, they said they were written by Moses. We all know who Moses is. We've watched the movie. Just a small snippet here to remind ourselves that, you know, Moses was floated down the river in his little basket and discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him in. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter raised him as her own son, 
And in Acts 7.22, it says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Some say he was, he was one of the princes of Egypt. Now, we are amazed even today, if you ever go to Egypt and you see the pyramids and the construction of them, how this is possible, right, that they could build things like that. And they say, well, UFOs came down and helped them build them because we're so stupid. We can't understand how people with that kind of limited technology could build something so incredible, right? But that's how smart people are, right? Just because it's 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, doesn't mean they weren't as intelligent or as smart as people are today. But their education includes reading and writing, of course, copying of classical literature, letter writing, administrative skills, as well as physical and military training common to royal princes. So what we see here is the trouble that God went to to educate uh, Moses so that he would have the skills and the capacity to, to write and compose and publish the five books of the law. Now, Moses would have learned hieroglyphics. Could you imagine him speaking hieroglyphics? And yet he wrote in the Hebrew language of the Hebrew people. And this is important because why would he write in the Egyptian language for people who spoke Hebrew? If you're going to publish something for the benefit of a, of a people group, you'd want to write it in their own language. So historically, we are told that Matthew wrote the gospel in Aramaic, which at that time was the language of the people that lived in Palestine and to the eastern part of the world. So we'll pick more up on that later, but I want you to think about this as a broad stroke and to keep it in your back pocket. So what we see here is that Moses was at least bilingual, which is typical of most people, except for many Americans. <laughs> so the Lord says to Moses, write down these words. Uh, in accordance with the words I made a covenant with you and with Israel, God probably spoke to him in Hebrew. Now, do you think Moses could write? So I looked up the word write, the Hebrew word for write in the Old Testament. It's used 225 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. I'm not going to tell you every place it's used, but what it shows is that these people are quite capable of writing things down. All right? And then in Deuteronomy, which is one of the books of the the five books of the law, uh, it says, if you're not careful to do what? All the words of this law that are written in this book. It was written down by Moses. Deuteronomy 31.9, Moses wrote the law and gave it to the priests, okay? And all the elders, so they have it. Here's another situation. The Lord said to Moses, Write this song, teach it to the people of Israel. And so Moses wrote this song the same day, taught to the people of Israel. When did he write it? Immediately. God says, write this down. What do you do? You go write it down. Right? Which is not a bad idea. Right? If you're keeping journals or you're, you're hearing from God, you're in prayer, and God says, write this down, you should write it down. You have a dream, you have a vision, you have a word from the Lord, why not? But well, what I want you to see here is how easy it was for Moses to find pen and paper and write it down. Paper was made in Egypt, you know what I'm saying? 
comes from uh, manufacturing those days, Nile River, which overflowed and grows wheat. Spring up. Oh well. So Moses didn't say to God, I can't write anything because I can't find paper and ink. It'll take me 30 years to write anything. Maybe, Lord, I'll wait for Joshua to write your five books. Okay. So where are we going with this? Where I'm going with this is it doesn't take 25 years for Moses to write five books of the Torah. Okay? doesn't take him. All that to make a point is that it's ridiculous to think that the apostles did not write anything about Jesus Christ and they had to wait 25 years for Mark, a non-apostle, to write 16 little chapters about the most important person that ever lived. Jesus is greater than Moses. Amen. This entire Mark wrote first theory is absolutely unreasonable. It's a novelty. It's a, it's, a fas it's a novelty now. So it doesn't take 25 years to write anything. So when you're reading through commentaries and you talk about, oh, it took him 20 years, it took him 30 years, it took him 40 years. You know, Matthew's now supposed to be written from 85 to 110 and not even written by Matthew. This is how confused the Western church is and how theology is such a state of chaos. As soon as you get rid of the anchor of history, it's just a mess. And so you as a young person, or you're going to commentaries, you're trying to sort stuff out, it's all confusing. You don't even know what to believe anymore about the origins of the Gospels. But the Mark wrote first theory is just, it's a novelty. And history is unanimous. Matthew wrote first. Matthew wrote very early. Matthew wrote in the local language of the people. He would have written it in the local language of the Jews of the time of Christ. They wouldn't not have waited to publish the life of Christ. Would they? No. Not buying it. Okay? Not going to buy into that. Where were we? Oh, here we were. <laughs> King Tor's robes. Okay? Part number two. Hilkiah is the high priest. So the guy, this guy, all of them, top dogs, part of his cabinet, his trusted advisors, people that are important in his kingdom. And he says, go inquire of the Lord for me. For the remnant, for Israel, and for Judah. So not just for me for Judah, and for Israel. So these guys are the royal delegation of the highest officials. They're going to inquire of the Lord, and they're going to go to where? Where are they going to go? To a recognized prophet. Okay? Royal command. Now this is a matter of national security, and the future of the nation of Judah and Israel are at stake. The delegation consisted of the high priest, a uh, very supporter of, uh, of Jeremiah, friend of Jeremiah, another guy that's the uh, son of Micah, a state secretary, uh, chief guys. 
Now, you think about the high priest. He, he should have some knowledge of Scripture, shouldn't he? The scribe should have some understanding of history, who's a you know, royal historian, should have some idea of the law of Moses. Uh, there must have been some awareness of the covenant with Yahweh. But these guys were sent by the king to ask the prophet to inquire of the Lord. Now, at this time, there were a number of reputable prophets that lived in and around Jerusalem, including Jeremiah and Zephaniah, perhaps Nahum and Habakkuk. Now, you would expect the royal team to go and consult Jeremiah. He had been prophesying for five years already before finding the law. You would expect that that would be where the king would send them. Now, what were prophets? Who were they? They were the spokesmen of God to Israel. They spoke the word of God to the nation as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right? 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. You must understand that no prophecy... Uh, scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You're talking about genuine prophecy, right? Not false prophecy, not fakers, liars, stuff like that. But Hilkiah did not consult Jeremiah about this matter or even Zephaniah. Hilkiah and those the king had designated went to Holda. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the wife of Shalom, who was the keeper of the wardrobe. All right? She lived in Jerusalem. And they went, the king sent this, de this delegation to inquire of the Lord from Huldah, and they spoke to her about finding the law. So who was Huldah? First of all, she is identified as a woman. All right? Now, how old is Huldah? How old do you think she is? I mean, at this time, Josiah is 26. There's no reason in the world for her to be 80. You know what I'm saying? Maybe she's the same age. She could be a young lady. Why not? Do you think she has lazy eye and scars or something? Okay. She could have been beautiful. What do you say? Why not? Now, does anyone have a problem with the top male leadership in Judah seeking godly advice and prophetic instruction from a godly woman? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. Definitely. Commentaries are full of Bible scholars scratching their heads. Why did King Josiah send his male leaders to consult a woman when Jeremiah was top dog, prophet. The fact that Josiah sought the advice of a, 
of God from a woman goes against everything they believe about the divine restrictions imposed on women. For instance, I will show you James Hurley, one of the top representatives of that view in regards to this particular scripture, says that Holda's role as a prophetess is a problem. And it's a problem because there were male prophets alive. Here's the question. How could Josiah have sent for a word from God through Huldah instead of through Jeremiah? Okay? That is a good question. Right? Why did God orchestrate all that in his sovereignty to instruct the men to go to Holda. Good question. On the other hand, my question is, why does Mr. Hurley even ask this question? Are you with me? Why do you question God's sovereign choice of a woman? <sighs> Hurley's puzzled and represents a huge wing of the Christian church. Holda's role as a prophetess, is a problem. Now, why should it be considered a problem that King Hezekiah and his male court sought direction from Holda? Why would that be a problem? It's a problem because of their theology. It's a problem because they've made it a problem. Are you with me? There's an entire wing of the Christian church that's fixated on restricting godly women from any meaningful ministry simply on the basis of gender. Now, if it's not a problem to God to utilize a godly woman in prophetic ministry, why should it be a problem to men? Well, Paul says so. Is Paul God? No, you're twisting Paul to make him say things that are contrary to the word of God and contrary to everything Paul teaches. Bottom line, are you ready for that? No matter how many scriptures you muster to muzzle godly women and to restrict good women from vocal gifts, prophecy, instruction, words of wisdom, knowledge, you are wrong. If you have a problem with Holda, your theology is the problem. You need to rethink your theology. Now, I believe God's sovereign. What does that mean? He can choose whomever he wants. Why can't we allow God to choose whomever he wants? What do you say? Got a whole book on this. I'll sell it to you, Dave, for 10 bucks. <laughs> really, it's in the back. Now, how did Holda, a woman, secure the trust of the king and his top male leadership? How did that happen? That she's the first choice. Oh, we need a word from the Lord. Let's go to Holda. They didn't go, oh, not her. Are you kidding me? Where's Jeremiah? I'm fishing to see a Galilee again. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. Hold a woman of noble character. 
She's full of the Holy Spirit. How else do you prophesy effectively? And she has a verified reputation as a prophet. She's a good and faithful wife. What do you think? Uh, her works are known in the gate. She serves God. She's happy. She's kind. Do you think she's a happy woman? Think she's some mean grump? She manages her household duties responsible, responsibly. Now, in this national crisis, the leaders of Judah want to be absolutely sure of the next steps they're supposed to take in this national reform. And the fact that they sought out these five royal officers, sought out Holda as evidence, how highly she was regarded for her prophetic gift. The problem many commentaries have with this scenario, of course, as we said, that's a woman. If they went to Jeremiah, no problem. Which is to say it shouldn't be a problem. The only problem is it's a woman, and that's the problem. They'd be completely happy if they went to Zephaniah. But the big five consulted Hulda. Now the Hurley guys are puzzled, confused, unhappy that they would seek advice from a woman. And the woman was the wife of Shalom, who was responsible for what? The wardrobe. But they, they had a good reason to consult her. It wasn't just, there's some lady married to the guy who takes care of the royal laundry. Let's go find her. She'll know what to do. So this isn't Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges. These are five royal appointed officers from King Josiah. And they're inquiring of what? The Lord about the nation. So what we have here is an extraordinary example of the power of the Holy Spirit that gifts a woman to speak the male word of God to male leadership. Is that possible? We have to say yes. Is it possible for a woman to be employed by God to speak with authority of the word of God to male leadership? Is that possible? Yes. Only if you believe scripture. <laughs> Hulda contradicts everything that the Hurley guys teach about the limited sphere of ministry available to women. She contradicts everything. Now, why would God violate his own divine order? Supposedly, it's built into creation. Women can't do this. God created Eve second. Therefore, women are secondary. Women are, women are less than. Women can't do. Women are restricted. Women are prohibited. Women are silenced. Women, women. It's like all of that is contradicted by Hulda. If Hulda is a problem, it's your problem. Are you with me? You take your theological problem to the cross of Christ and you crucify it there where Jesus paid the price for all of us. We are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. 
We have no right to condemn what God commends. Holder was their first choice, not their last resort. The king says, hey, we need a word from God. Go talk to Holder. Now, we know the vast majority of prophets in the Old Testament were male. There's a few notable ex exceptions. Miriam, Deborah, Holda, Nadiah, Anna. We have prototypes. We have examples of women in the Old Testament that we can use to understand how ministry, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will impact women in the New Testament. The church in the New Testament is organized by spiritual gifting. It's not by ethnicity. It's not by age, not by gender, not by social status, as it perhaps had been in the past. And if women were going to be prophets in the New Testament, what kind of role models would serve as their standard? Well, we'd use Deborah for sure, right? Holda, she's pretty awesome. We could also use Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel. They're prophets, were they not? If you wanted to see how prophets work and how prophecy works, you'd want to use them. We also want to understand that whenever God empowered a woman by the Holy Spirit to prophesy in the Old Testament, she always spoke to the nations, she spoke to Israel. Women prophets in the Old Testament did not just prophesy to women. God did not raise up female prophets to teach women's Bible studies. The holy women of God moved by the Holy Spirit, prophesied to men, to leadership, to kings, to nations. In fact, Deborah was the chief leader of the nation. Prophets were counsels to the top level of male leadership in every example that we have. Did hold a council men? Is that a problem? No. No problem. Why create a problem when there is no problem? Are you with me? Look in the mirror. That's your problem. <laughs> Female prophets in the Old Testament spoke with the authority of God to men. That is a fact. The Old Testament practice sets the pattern for prophecy in the New Testament. There is no other model. If we're to accept the Old Testament as divine model, then women who prophesy in the New Testament must also speak to congregation, to men in particular. All right? Now, fortunately, hold as a wife. So we could understand that the prophetic gifting was possible for a woman and for a wife. Holda fulfilled her domestic roles as a wife and her office as a prophet without restrictions, limitations, or condemnation. Hurley says this. This is a representative of that. He's a top-of-the-food-chain guy. If you can do any study on this, he's going to come up, you're going to read his books. He says, without any evidence, without evidence to the contrary, we must assume that the civil and religious functions these women, these, these prophetic women, did not overturn their domestic responsibilities, their domestic legal status. 
He's so obsessed with their domestic legal status. It's like they break a law if they went outside. It's like we might call this legalism. Huh? Think about it. It's a domestic legal status. And he's, we're just hoping it doesn't overturn that <laughs> by assuming these civil and religious functions of the prophet. Anybody <laughs> got a paper bag? Now, of course, the callings and the giftings of God do not negate or nullify anyone's domestic responsibility. That's a no-brainer. If you are married, you have domestic responsibilities, regardless of your gifting or your calling. Men have as many domestic responsibilities as women. Hmm? You don't need a PhD to understand that. You shouldn't be in the leadership position if you fail your domestic responsibilities. 1 Timothy 3, New Testament says, you want to be a leader in a congregation? You want an office of an overseer or bishop? Hey, you got to take care of your family. You got to manage your family well. Hey, if you can't manage your house, how are you going to manage a church? Right? So often we go, oh, women have. Domestic responsibilities. Well, so do guys, right? So do men. If you fail your domestic responsibilities as a man, you should not have a leadership position in the church. <sighs> what can we learn about God from Holda? These things are written for us that we can have hope. Holda is hope. Hope for women, hope for the future. Now, if I have a choice between Hurley and Holda, I'm choosing Holda, all right? Because I have a choice to make. I'm going to choose Holda. I'm going to choose God's choice over commentaries. If Hurley were alive at that time, at the time of Josiah, he would have not gone to Holda because of some theology he has in his head that prohibits him from receiving instruction from a woman built upon some theory that they make up. It's made up. Holda is hope. Hurley, hopeless. It's obvious from the example of Holda that the Old Testament recognizes a place for women in the roles of national prophetic ministry. And she and Holda spoke the male word from God the male word from God to the men in the royal leadership of Judah. She provides spiritual direction to the king and to the nation as a prophet anointed by God. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Depending on your ability to learn from Scripture, learn what God has placed in Scripture for us to learn, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not wrong. It's not a problem. 
Holda is not the problem. The male leaders went to inquire of her, not to silence her. Holda is not a witch. She's not a medium. She's not using a crystal ball or tarot cards. She's hearing from God <laughs> by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, check it out. Uh, oh, okay. This is good. We should have seen that one earlier. Nothing wrong with it. Okay? So if this was a fabricated story, let's say you're just making this up. This is some kind of legend. They would have chosen Jeremiah as the prophet. What do you think? If this was mythological invention, they wouldn't have used a woman as the voice of God to the nation. Holda's not a false prophet. She's not a Jezebel. She's not in rebellion to any so-called divine order, construct of men's tradition. She's not in rebellion to her husband. She doesn't violate any rigid domestic role. She only violates Hurley. And think about it. They had 600 years before Christ to change this to be less embarrassing to the male ego. Prophecy knows no gender. You think God cares? Obviously he doesn't. Her gift didn't catapult her into leadership position over the king and over the king's men, did it? This is important. So even though she has the authority of the word of God and she's anointed by the Holy Spirit, that doesn't catapult her in leadership position over the king, does it? No, it does not. She is still under the king, even with this prophetic gift, which is to say, Josiah is still her king. He's still also her leader, even though she has the word of God that has come to her for the nation. <clears throat> Holy Spirit used her to help guide the leadership of Judah regarding the biblical doctrine of judgment based on the book of the law. She interpreted the scripture and the signs of the times accurately. Her word was true. Now, we can say, well, you know, evil's deceived. Yeah, but hold is not deceived. Are you with me? Not all women universally are deceived by the mere fact of their gender. Her words are as anointed as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. Her words are canon of scripture and suitable for doctrine, correction, training, and reproof. So the fact that she gave this word does not usurp male leadership. It's important. What do you think? Now, these aren't wimpy men, are they? No. We can conclude from Holda that it's legitimate for a woman and a wife and probably a mother to exercise authority under God-appointed leadership if it's by the gift and the will of the Holy Spirit. Because everyone is under authority, are they not? We're all under the headship of Christ, and we're all under those who have appointed us to different positions. <coughs> Excuse me. We're all under the word of God, are we not? There's no lone rangers, nobody out there all by themselves. At least you shouldn't be. An authority to yourself. 
We're all in accountable networks and structures. We're all submitted one to another in the fear of Christ. She's not going, I'm a prophet. I'm over everybody. Is she doing that? No. She wouldn't be a good prophet then, would she? She's indicative of the respected authority available to good woman through God's prophetic gifting of the Holy Spirit. Her femaleness is not an obstacle to her being a servant of God. Among the highest levels of male leadership among God's chosen people, the so-called unbreakable boundary of Hurley's created role relationship between men and women is not violated by the proper use of spiritual gifts. The gender card around Holda's neck only makes it that much more extraordinary, courageous, and admirable that she could effectively mentor the king of Judah and his high priest concerning the word of God in spite of her being a female. I'll drink to that. And her ministry and her prophetic office office are recognized as from God. We want to hear from God. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Nothing bad to say about her. It's all good. Everything good. Now, it's usually those who do the most chest pounding about the sovereignty of God that are most embarrassed by this sovereign act of God. Now, it's better for us to choose what God chooses and allow God to make his own choice. That's all I'm saying. Why can't you let God do what he wants to do? I don't know. God's sovereign. He won't do that. God is sovereign. Hold the most nearly reflects the new covenant, the New Testament that she was gifted to lead and to speak by the Holy Spirit apart from circumcision. And in spite of her handicap of being a woman, she was empowered by God to guide the top leaders of God's people. And it was her courage uh, that motivated the young King Josiah to move forward with his religious reforms. Her word was accepted by all as the word of Yahweh, the word of God. Now, if you think about it, her interpretation of Scripture stands juxtaposed to false prophets. Were there false prophets? Tons of them. The the reality is the prophet said, look it, the law of Moses says you continue to disobey God consistently for such a long period of time, God will judge you, and then God will evict you. We've already seen that happen in 722 B.C., and they're on the, the verge of that happening in the southern kingdom. So... The false prophets are saying, peace, peace, nothing's going to happen, everything's good. I think all false prophets in the Old Testament were men. Could be wrong. All the worst kings were men. Prophets of Baal were men. Which is to say, men have not done a good enough job of leadership to claim superiority status. Now, this same spirit that was on Hulda will be poured out upon all flesh in the New Covenant and the New Testament period. 
as we've seen so many times in Acts 2.17, when he quotes from the Old Testament and applies it in the New Testament, it says, this Holy Spirit is going to be poured on everybody, which is what? All ethnicities, all tribes, language, tongues, people, all over the world, global. The Holy Spirit's for everybody now. It's going to break out of the narrow confines of Judaism. It's going to go global. And it's going to go sons and daughters. As far as I know, daughters are female. They identify as females. <clears throat> In those days, I'm going to pour out my spirit even on the lowest social strata, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. That's a remarkable and definite change that we see in the New Covenant, the New Testament. We see it in Philip's ministry. He had four daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Now, there are four female prophets that we know of in the entire Old Testament record, and here we find five in one family in the New Testament period that were spirit-filled and recognized as female prophets. Exciting, huh? So, Holder's message had two parts. <clears throat> the first part had to deal with the book of the law in terms of its judgment uh, against Judah. And she said, this is what the Lord says. Can you imagine? <clears throat> tell that man. Tell the man who sent you. Is he a man? Yeah, he's just a man. Is he under God? Yeah. Is he under the word? Yeah. So as far as anybody's concerned, no matter what your position is, you're just a person. And you're all under God. And you know what? This disaster is going to affect everybody because you consistently disobey God to the point where God says, I've had it with you because. Now, what's because? Because is a contingency. Because is a reason. Is God unreasonable? No. You would be just as disgusted by this as God is. Do you think you'd be happy if there had images and idols or burning incense and doing human sacrifice and sacrificing uh, you know, your children to demons and idols? Are you happy with that? You happy with corruption and the fraud and the lying and the murder and the oppression and the abuse that comes from all this idol worshiping? No. Mm -mm. And the injustice, are you happy with that? No one is. You'd be just as upset with God. And God says, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to gods, provoked me to anger by their idols, I will not be quenched. Okay? This is important. Memorize that. This burning fire of God's anger will not be quenched. In other words, it's just a matter of time. And Holda prophesied Jerusalem's destruction in agreement with the Mosaic Covenant, the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Sinai Covenant. But then she said to the king, now, to the king, all right? Tell the king who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord God, the God of Israel says, concerning the words that you've heard read to him by the high priest in the book of the law. He says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself when you heard what I've spoken, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I will gather you to your fathers in peace. Because you repented at the word of God, because you heard the word of God 
God convicted you and you responded to it. He says, there's mercy for you, <clears throat> declares the Lord. I'll gather you to your fathers. You're not going to see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Now, as far as the nation was concerned, God was going to send his wrath because of their disgusting disobedience. As far as Josiah was concerned, he'd be spared this judgment because of his godly life and humility. So she was able to guide King Josiah and the national reforms in Judah and Israel within the scope of being married and being a prophet. So what does the king do when he gets this word? He goes, hey, let's get everybody together. Let's get all the elders. Let's go up to the temple. We're going to get the people, the priests. We're going to get the other prophets, whoever they are. <coughs> all the people, top to bottom. And we're going to read the words of the book of the covenant, which has been found. So he's going to say, we're going to read it all. So he stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant. Amen. To follow the Lord. We're going to follow the Lord. Amen. We're going to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all the heart and soul, thus confirming the words of this covenant written in the book. And all the people pledge themselves to the covenant. Isn't that awesome? So, in the New Testament, spiritual gifting is central to the proper functioning of the church effectiveness. The church is to be structured by spiritual gifts. Large or small, everybody has something to contribute. It's not about one person doing one thing. It's about everybody's a team working together, the body of Christ. You know, some are hands, some are mouth, eye, you know, whatever it is. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, huge top about, talk, uh, discussion about those issues, but it's by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And in the upper room, there were men and women there who went out into all the world and preached the gospel. <clears throat> and Holda is a foundation for us to help us understand how not only the prophetic ministry works, because she was a woman of godly character, but how also that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh in the period in which we live. Are you glad? Yes. So, two things. The fact that these are Jews are very literary people. It's not going to take them 25 years to write anything. And that God can use whomever he wants whenever he wants. Why don't we let him do that? Amen. And then in the New Testament, we're a church that's organized by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need everybody to do whatever gift and calling that you have to advance the kingdom of God in our generation. If you think about now, more than 50% of the church is women, which is to say that God in his sovereignty is choosing his army among female gender. And if we hamstring them, instead of equipping them for ministry, then we're doing a disservice to God's choice. Number one, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not born again, you don't understand anything I'm telling you, you need to call upon the name of the Lord. When they got together, they inquired of the Lord. Uh, they knew who God was in their life. <clears throat> First thing you want to do is say, Jesus, I need you in my life. 
Jesus, I need you to forgive my sins. You need to rip open your clothes, the door of your heart, and say, Lord, I need you in, in my life. The second thing you need to say here is I need more of the Holy Spirit. Right? How do you do that? You say, God, here I am. I want to make room for you. I want to cleanse the temple. I want to get rid of my idols, my images, my incense, my altars. Tear them up. Get rid of them. Make more room for the Holy Spirit in your life. Ask God to cleanse your heart and to fill you with the Holy Spirit. All right? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you so much that there's so much application from your word for us today. There's so many things that we can learn about you and how you've worked throughout just thousands and thousands of years. Uh, Lord, we want to let you be God and you do whichever you want to do. Lord, we are your servants. We're here to serve you. We want to make you known in our generation. And so, Father, we just come before you right now in the name of Jesus. And, Lord, we want to consecrate ourselves. We want to commit ourselves to your word and to the covenant that you've made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ to serve you and to be fruitful in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Whew. Stand if you can. Just worship the Lord. There's some furniture or things you need to move out of your closet of your heart. Let's take a few moments to do that. And just consecrate yourself again to the Word of God and to the work of God.
Bless Pastor Kurt. Bless everybody here. Thank you, Lord, that we can have our doors open. And thank you, Lord, that the that the Supreme Court supported the church, Lord. What a uh, praise report. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week.